May 21st, 1927. All Paris seemed fixed upon the sky tonight as vast throngs at Le Bourget Field strained to hear the faint hum that would signal triumph for Charles A. Lindbergh. Then, just as hope was fading, the aviator's sleek silver-gray monoplane, which had flown 3,600 miles from New York in 33 and a half hours, descended quietly, almost magically, onto a distant runway at 1024 setting off a hysterical rush by the cheering French. Well, I made it, said the quiet Midwesterner, as he was mobbed and carried off by the ecstatic crowd. It was the first time I'd ever been abroad. <laughs> I'd seen a number of very interesting things as I flew over southern England the south coast of Ireland and France. I'd only been gone from America for two days, a little less. And I wasn't in any hurry to get back. Charles Augustus Lindbergh, the American aviator who became a folk hero, grew up on a homestead in Minnesota on the banks of the Mississippi. He learned to hunt and fish, row a boat, swim in the creek, chase butterflies, study woodcraft, collect turtles. There was a pattern in his life that was constant. The solo flight to Paris in a single-engined aircraft was only the last of a list of challenges to which he had responded. The event that first lit his fire was when his father bought a Model T Ford and the 11-year-old Charles found that his legs were just long enough to reach the pedals. In his daydreams, he went farther. Lying on his back in the fields, he would watch the clouds drift overhead. It was a different world up there, he wrote years later. How wonderful it would be if I had an aeroplane, wings with which I could fly up to the clouds and explore their caves and canyons, wings like that hawk circling above me. Then I would ride on the wind and be part of the sky. Everything today has been heavy and brown. Bring me a unicorn to ride about the town. The world in which Anne Morrow grew up could hardly have been more different from that of Charles Lindbergh. She was a clever, cultured girl in her third year at university. She wrote poetry. Her father was a prosperous banker who was also American ambassador to Mexico. In the wake of Lindbergh's flight to Paris, 
Dwight Morrow persuaded him to make a non-stop trip from Washington to Mexico City. There was a splendid reception to greet the hero, and the three Morrow daughters, home for Christmas, were brought to meet him. December 21st, 1927. We drove through the streets and honked loudly before an iron gate with eagles above on the crest. Stone steps, red velvet rolling up like a wedding in between palms. Officers stood on the steps at attention. We tumbled out, dazed, and peered up the red plush stairs between lines of officers. What a movie! How ridiculous was all I could say. We were a little annoyed, all this public hero stuff breaking into our family party. What did I expect? A regular newspaper hero, the baseball player type. A nice man, perhaps, but not at all intellectual, and not of my world at all, so I wouldn't be interested. I certainly was not going to worship Lindy, that odious name anyway. Upon some future day But take your hats off To plucky, lucky Lindbergh The eagle of the USA Anne's scathing tone didn't last for very long. Before the evening was over, she had dramatically revised her first impressions. We went up the stairs. I saw him standing against the great stone pillar a tall, slim boy in evening dress. So much slimmer, so much taller, so much more poised than I'd expected. A very refined face, not at all like those grinning Lindy pictures. Clear, straight blue eyes, fair hair. He is very, very young and terribly shy. Looked straight ahead and talked in short, direct sentences, which came out abrupt and clipped. You could not meet his sentences. They were statements of fact, presented with such honest directness. It was amazing and breathtaking. I could not speak. I think it is not what he has done. Other men could have done the same thing. It seems as though it must be either that he is the symbol of the most beautiful, most stupendous achievement of our age, as typical and beautiful an expression as the cathedral was of the Middle Ages, or is it just personal magnetism? flew away on his flying machine, but he was soon back. Although he was careful to adopt the stance of family friend and socialised with the three girls, already newspapers were poised for any whiff of romance surrounding this glamorous bachelor, he gravitated to the tiny brunette with the inquiring mind. Her zest to sample this new experience of flying was a great bonding between them. 
This morning we drove to the flying field. I kept saying over and over to myself, God, let me be conscious of what is happening while it is happening. Let me realize it and feel it vividly. A crowd around the hangars. The Ford plane shone silver in the hot field. It was like a train inside. Wicker chairs, only slanted back at a terrific angle. The plane was nosed upwards. That angle gave me my first and only impression of fear. The engine whirred. We started to roll. Suddenly, I felt the sensation of going up. A great lift, like a bird, like one's dreams of flying. We soared in layers. We were high above fields, and there, far, far below, was a small shadow, as of a great bird tearing along the neatly marked-off field. That shadow meant us, us like a mirror, that bird. It was us. At lunch, I spoke to him about how glorious it was, the soaring lift, really, the way you dream of it. I spoke of learning to fly. Could I? I don't see why not, he said. When I was young, I felt so small and frightened, for the world was tall, and even grasses seemed to me a forest of immensity, until I learned that I could grow, a glance would leave them far below, spanning a tree's height with my eye, suddenly I soared as high, and fixing on a star I grew, I pushed my head against the blue, still like a singing lark, I find rapture to leave the grass behind. And sometimes, standing in a crowd, my lips are cool against a cloud. Among all the marvels of modern invention, that with which I am most concerned is, of course, air transportation. Flying is perhaps the most dramatic of recent scientific attainments. In the brief span of 30-odd years, the world has seen an inventor's dream, first materialized by the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, become an everyday actuality. Perhaps I am prejudiced, but to me it seems that no other phase of modern progress contrives to maintain such a brimming measure of romance and beauty coupled with utility as does aviation. Anne was already deeply involved. Lindbergh was her unicorn, Pegasus with a horn, and he was captivated by her outward shyness, which melted to reveal enthusiasms and imagination rather like his own. She was quite different to the giggling, starstruck girls who had surrounded him. There was an added challenge in that she came from a world socially and culturally a cut above him. She was in her way a prize, like the first solo flight to Paris. The idea of this clear, direct, straight boy, how it has swept out of sight all other men I have ever known. All the pseudo-intellectuals, the sophisticates, the posers, all the arty people. All my life, in fact, my world, my little embroidery-beribboned world, is smashed. The feeling of exultant joy that there is anyone like that in the world, that there is such a person alive, there is such a life, and I am here on this earth, at this age, to know it. They were engaged in the fall of 1928. She was 22 and he four years older. I'm happy, so happy walking on air, the why and the wherefore. 
is someone I care for. I'm yelling, I'm telling folks everywhere. I know that she loves me, so why do I care? There's a rainbow round my shoulder and a sky of blue above. Oh, the sun shines bright, the world's all right, cause I'm in love. There's a rainbow round my shoulder and it fits me like a glove. Let it blow or storm, but I'll be warm cause I'm in love. Hallelujah, how the folks will stand when they see the diamond solitaire. That my little sugar baby is gonna wear. Yes, sir, there's a rainbow round my shoulder. As Lindbergh's co-pilot and navigator, Anne encountered some terrifying experiences. Taking off from Mexico City, one wheel came rolling off its axle, leaving them no choice but to prepare for a crash landing. Dearest Constance, I suppose you want to know about the ace and fiancé episode. I wish I had written sooner because the papers made it sound pretty bad. I was on the seat behind Charles, with the big flying suit on and a pillow in front of me, and another for me to put over my head if we went over. He told me to open the windows so we could get out. When I said to him, I don't see how you can help being hurt, he said he didn't think it would be such a bad landing. Then we flew over the field. I shall never forget it. That casual group of people, curiously waiting, watching for us, suddenly galvanized to petrified attention, seeing the stump and only one wheel. All their hands pointing, everyone running out, waving, shouting. Those little ants down there below us, running around, madly waving, and absolutely powerless to help us. I had one terrible moment of panic. Now here is the test. Suppose you can't face it. You will be just ruined in his eyes. Suppose I can't. Then we slanted down on one wheel, then a waver of the wing, a jolt, and I remember nothing till my back banged on the ceiling. I was out the window and asking, How are you? He was holding his hand. We looked at each other and smiled. He talked quietly but with effort to a mad group of people, telling them he had dislocated his shoulder. Would they guard the plane so no one would take souvenirs? Anne had to say goodbye to the private life she had always cherished and become part of Lindbergh's devouring public life. It was an ordeal she never got used to. Each day the press waited at the embassy gates for the pair to appear and then set off in pursuit. They climbed like monkeys onto roofs and broke into their garden. To avoid them, the fugitives used back doors, changed cars, put on disguise. The only true escape was flying. They took off into the blue, then landed on some deserted spot to picnic in blessed privacy. The wedding had to be a family affair only, held without warning, because the publicity would be unbearable. Anne wore a dress made by the local seamstress and carried a bouquet of flowers picked that morning in her own garden. There were no photographs because a photographer might have let the news out in advance. After the ceremony in the Morrow home in New Jersey, she lay on the floor of a borrowed car while her new husband drove past the reporters at the gate. They had planned a sailing trip in Long Island Sound to get out of reach, but a plane tracked down their small cabin cruiser and they were wakened by a cameraman circling round them in a small boat bawling for them to come and pose on deck. 
man felt like an escaped convict with the cops in pursuit. Hallelujah, how the folks will stand when they see the diamond solitaire that my little sugar baby is gonna wear. Yes, sir, there's a rainbow around my shoulder and a sky of blue above. And I'm shouting so the world will know that I'm in love. I'm in I'm in love. Dearest Con, this is our third day of flying and I'm rather tired. We left Roosevelt Field and went through a terrible lot of rain and mist over the valleys of western New Jersey. It was quite lovely. Even a thousand feet up you can smell the wet earth. But over the Alleghenies it was bad. Trying to go through very thick fog on a mountain, not seeing ahead, it brings a cold terror to you. You see, the fog is so deceiving, it lets you get a glimpse of a hill, and then while you're looking in the opposite direction, it covers it up, and you were utterly confused. We had to turn back once or twice and go around a mountain. I was terrified. June 28, 1929. Mother darling, we haven't slept twice at one place, flying constantly. Yesterday was the most thrilling day. Flying from Indianapolis about sunset, we started to climb. There was a rainbow behind us, a glorious bow that was much bigger and brighter than those on the ground. We saw one more than a half circle. Great, piled-up golden clouds behind. I thought of you saying to me in Mexico that first morning, Anne, you'll have the sky. The sky! July 8th. Con, darling, I have so much to tell you. We are flying from Los Angeles to Arkansas, my first passenger-paying trip in this big three-motor Ford passenger plane. This is a huge craft, beautifully decorated inside, green leather-covered chairs, little green curtains and shaded lights. A white-uniformed attendant has given me a large folding map of the route, postcards of places along it, has offered me a little aluminum table to write on. There is a radio operator on board who looks as though he were playing a kazoo. He has a round metal box fastened to his mouth, and he is talking into it. For the first five months of their marriage, the Lindberghs were on the go continuously, living out of suitcases, stopping at small airports. They flew from Miami to Cuba, to Haiti and Venezuela, and Trinidad and Panama. Anne missed her family terribly. They had been an intensely close group. August 6th, 1929. I have just gotten an invitation for us to spend the weekend with President and Mrs. Hoover. Charles says we must accept. Of course it is lovely and considerate of them to take us to their camp. Still, it annoys me to have to accept anything. It worries me to be so dependent. Charles's plans are so unpredictable that I cannot be sure of seeing you. We've been rushing a great deal lately. 
There is so much I have digested and thought about on those long flights when there is nothing else to do. Charles and I scribble absurdly silly notes to each other with lots of pictures and quips. It is fun. If only he had written letters like that. Now there was another reason for longing for quiet and a place of her own. She was expecting a baby. Not, though, before she acquired her gliding pilot's licence and broke the transcontinental speed record with Lindbergh. Two months later, Charles Augustus Jr. was born on the 22nd of June, 1930, his mother's 24th birthday. Hello, young Lindy, your dad's in a cloud, but we're right with him, you bet we are proud. Proud of all the deeds that your daddy has done, but we know he is prouder of his little son. Dear Mrs. Lindbergh, I am so happy. When I first saw the baby, I thought, oh dear, it's going to look like me. Dark hair and a nose all over its face. But then I discovered what I think is Charles's mouth and the unmistakable cleft in the chin. So I went to sleep quite happy. July 30th. My darling Elizabeth, he is such fun now. Every day I hold him once or twice and talk to him and his eyes very big and blue, look wide open and curious at me, and then he smiles and opens up his face as Charles does. He is now lying in the familiar Highland fling position, one hand above the head, one across his chest. Just a little white house with a little green blind at the end of Honeymoon Lane. Just a little white gate that early and late seems to say, won't you please call again? You leave troubles outside and your joys just begin when the little front door whispers, won't you come in to the little white house with a little green blinds at the end of honeymoon September, the Lindberghs bought a piece of land on which to build their first home. Now they were a family. It lay on a hill a few miles from Hopewell in the Sourland Mountains of New Jersey, 20 minutes from Princeton, two hours from New York. It was surrounded by woods, had a fine rolling view, and there was a field in front on which to land a plane. It was isolated and secluded enough to give them the privacy they were craving for. In the new year of 1931, while the house was being built, Anne and Charles made another epic flight to explore the Great Circle route to China via Alaska and Japan. They'd be away at least three months. It was a tormenting decision for Anne to leave the baby. But she was Lindbergh's flying partner, radio operator and photographer, and the baby would be safe and happy with her own family. The trip ended in near disaster when they had to be rescued from the sea in Shanghai, but at last they were home. Climb up on my knee, honey boy. Oh, you're only three, honey boy. You've no way of knowing, there's no way of showing. What you mean to me, honey boy? November 12th, 1931. Dear Mrs. Lindbergh, it is good to be home. 
And oh, the baby. He's a strong, independent boy swaggering around on his firm little legs. He did not know us, but was not at all afraid of Charles, which pleased Charles tremendously. He began to take such an interest in the baby, playing with him, spoiling him by giving him toast and jam off his plate, and tossing him up in the air. We gave him one of your red apples to play with, thinking he'd just play ball with it. Not at all. He knew it was much too good an apple to play ball with, and immediately dug his four front teeth into it. I can't wait to have you see the boy. I don't want to cut his curls off till you see him. February 7th, 1932. Dear Mrs. Lindbergh, Charles Jr. is trying to stand on his head and look at me upside down through his legs. He talks a great deal more now. He says a very firm, uh-huh, for yes, which sounds quite tough, and a very firm, complacent, nah, when he doesn't want to do something. I say it's a very determined Swedish no. I wouldn't be surprised to hear him add on to it. I tank, I go home. Charles Jr. and Sr. have a wonderful time together. Want to swing up in the air? Uh-huh. Again? Nah. <laughs> On the evening of March 1st, 1932, the 18-month-old boy was taken from his crib in his new home near Hopewell. A note was left on the windowsill demanding a ransom for his safe return. During the ten weeks of waiting while they negotiated with the kidnappers, Anne wrote a series of letters to her mother-in-law, written almost daily, giving the horror as she lived through it. March 2nd. I'm going to write to you this first afternoon. I will write to you as I would like it told to me, and as I cannot tell you on the telephone. At 7.30, Betty and I were putting the baby to bed. We closed and bolted all the shutters except the warped one, which wouldn't close. At 10, Betty went into the boy to cover him. She lit the electric stove, then turned to the bed. It was empty, and the side still up, no blankets taken. She thought Charles had taken him for a joke. I did, until I saw his face. You know the rest, except the bit of evidence which has not been released. The ladder, the muddy windowsill, the ransom letter. I was afraid of a lunatic. But the well-made plan knocks that out. The detectives are very optimistic, though they think it will take time and patience. In fact, they think the kidnappers have got themselves into a terrible jam. So much pressure, such a close net over the country, such sympathy for us, and the widespread publicity, every police force on its medal, that their one hope is to get the baby back unharmed. 
March 3rd. We've gotten several fake postcards about the baby's position, but I got a telegram this morning that looks as if it might be genuine, saying that the baby was under the care of a trained nurse and in good condition. All the papers said that he was ill when he left, but he wasn't. He was just over a cold and was dressed warmly that night, with an extra shirt on under his regular shirt and then the wool coverall sleeping suit on top. Charles is very tired, but marvelously contained, and acts with such swiftness and judgment. The house is bedlam, hundreds of men stamping in and out, sitting everywhere on the stairs, on the pantry sink. There are planes overhead. People sleep all over the floors on newspapers and blankets. But the press are not photographing the place anymore, which allows us to go out and walk. That is a great help to me. March 6th. Yesterday I wrote you not to believe anything the newspapers said, and this morning they came out with very accurate and hopeful news. We have indeed come to an understanding with two of the biggest men in the underworld, men who have tremendous power with all gangs. It may take a good time to get him back, because they are naturally not going to run any risks of being caught, and the police and the press will have to quiet down. The headlines must go before they will move feel as though it had been years and years. I feel old and tired and numb. Everything is so unreal. I'm glad it is unreal. I do not want to realize anything. Charles has gotten more sleep than most by choosing his time, not wasting strength on petty things, and is now a general, marching his forces with terrific discipline. It is a slow, hard game. March 9th. We are just waiting. There is nothing to do. But the men do not feel less hopeful. This lull, in a way, is good for them. They can get sleep and exercise. But with the lull, the tabloids bring out wild stories every hour, none of them true. I am so afraid you get false clues and hopes every hour. They say the New York tabloids bring out an extra every night to say the baby is found. But here... They think it will be a slow, unspectacular business deal, the return of the child. And it will not happen till things are quieter and safer for the kidnappers. Did you hear that in Madison Square Garden last night, they stopped a ball game and asked everyone to stand for three minutes and pray for the safe return of the baby? And that whole square of people stood quiet, just as they did for Charles's flight.
March 16th. I realize nothing emotionally, except when some small immediate annoyance sets off the blaze. It is possible to live here and realize nothing about the baby. This is so removed from him. Does that sound hard and unfeeling? I feel that I am willing to barter anything for my self-control right now, because it is so necessary. Time has not continued since that Tuesday night. It is as if we stepped off into one long night or day, and I have a sustained feeling like a high note on an organ that has got stuck inside me. It is just that night elongated. There is no sense of continuity. You cannot remember what happened before that. It is like that all the time. We've had 38,000 letters in that first month. The troopers have sorted them as to contents. Dreams, 12,000. Sympathy, 11,500. Suggestions, 9,500. Cranks, 5,000. The demands for money have been very shocking. The number of people who say, if we will hand over such and such amount, they will deliver the child. May 7th. The place looks so beautiful now. I wish you could see it. Such a great deal of dogwood. We've never seen it in the spring. The hill behind the house is massed with white and pinkish dogwood, which shows up against the dark cedar. Then there is the light green of the tulip trees. The woods are full of violets. Perhaps we will all still be here together in the spring sometime, and happy. May 11th. I woke from a dream of the return of the baby and someone saying, Why, she hasn't even kissed him yet. I thought, they don't understand. I don't want to kiss him, but just put my hand over the top of his curls. The eternal quality of certain moments in one's life. The baby being lifted out of his crib forever and ever, like Dante's hell. Charles's set face, carved into time for always. You're sent from heaven, and I know your worth, why you've made a heaven for me here on earth. When I'm old and gray, dear, I know you'll never stray, dear. For I love you so, so Princeton, New Jersey, May 12, 1932. The search for the kidnapped son of Charles A. Lindbergh ended today in the worst way imaginable. The decomposed body of Charles Lindbergh, Jr., was found in woods less than five miles from the family home. A truck driver discovered the naked form of the 20-month-old child in a shallow grave. It was taken to the county morgue in Trenton, where the child's nursemaid, Miss Betty Gow, identified the infant as the boy once called the Fat Lamb. Mrs. Lindbergh, expecting another baby soon, will not be asked to confirm the grim findings. That burden will fall on her husband, who is expected in town tomorrow having followed up on one of many dead-end leads. Since the child vanished on March the 1st, there have been no firm clues as to the identity of the kidnapper, other than a poorly spelled ransom note and the delivery of the baby's pajamas by a man with a German accent who was heard but was not seen. 
Everything is telescoped into one moment, one of those eternal moments. The moment when I realized the baby had been taken and I saw the baby dead in the first flash of horror. Everything since then has been unreal. It has all vanished like smoke. Only that moment remains. It was then and it is now. I feel, strangely, a sense of, not peace, but an end of restlessness, a finality as though I were sleeping in a grave. It is a relief to know, definitely, that he did not live beyond that night. I keep him intact, somehow, by that. He was with me the last weekend and left, loving me better than anyone. I know that. I thought I would lead him and teach him, and now he is gone, first, into the biggest experience in life. He is ahead of me, my gay and arrogant child going into it. And it will not seem so terrifying, so awesome, a little door. They talk and talk, but I am tired of the talk. What difference does it make now? Why Tuesday night? What happened to the diapers? To reconstruct his murder, to try to understand. I will never climb out of this hell that way. May 21st. Last night I went into his closet, opened the door, a flood of warmth. His blue coat on a hook, his red tam, the little cobweb scarf we tied around his neck. In the pocket of his blue coat, I found a shell and his red mittens. It was like touching his hand. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore, and yesterday, or centuries before? The feet, mechanical, go round, of ground or air or aught, a wooden way, regardless grown, a quartz contentment like a stone. This is the hour of lead, remembered if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First chill, then stupor, then the letting go. Anne gave birth to her second child in August the same year, another son. They called him John. I woke to that same unmistakable bleat, uncertain, hesitating bleat across all other sound of the baby. Mother's voice, quiet, dear, and full of humour. A little boy, Anne. I wanted to know over and over again if the baby was all right, perfectly all right. Then thought how lovely it would have been for Charlie, a little brother. And... I felt years removed from the night before, and the months before that night. I felt I had given birth to more than a baby, to new life in myself, in Charles, in Mother. Charles, a teasing boy again. Mother, gently, softly gay as she used to be with Charlie. And I felt as if a great burden had fallen off me. I could not imagine the baby would do this for me. But I felt life given back to me. A door to life opened. I wanted to live. I felt power to live. I was not afraid of death or life. 
a spell had been broken by this real, tangible, perfect baby coming into an imperfect world and coming out of the teeth of sorrow. A miracle. For whom the milk ungiven in the breast when the child is gone? For whom the love locked up in the heart that is left alone? That golden yield split sod once, overflowed an August field, threshed out in pain upon September's floor, now hoarded high in barns, a sterile store. Break down the bolted door, rip open, spread, and pour the grain upon the barren ground, wherever crack in clod is found. There is no harvest for the heart alone. The seed of love must be eternally re-sown. A poem called Second Sowing, written ten years after the tragedy by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, now the mother of five children. The Lindberghs never returned to the house in Hopewell. They gave it to the state of New Jersey to use as a children's home, to make good out of evil if that is possible, as Anne put it. In fact, their attachment to America itself was undermined by their personal tragedy. They had grown to loathe the invasion of their lives by the press, which continued to harass them. In 1935, after the trial and execution of Bruno Hockmann for the kidnapping, they moved to England to live and remain there until the outbreak of World War II. Others may make the trip across the sea upon some future day, but take your hats off to lucky, lucky Lindbergh's sea. 